You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So you know that your genes are not just about you, right? It's something that you share with people closest to you. Uncovering potential health issues early on can help empower you with the information that you need so you and your family can move forward to a healthier future, which brings me to Ancestry Health. With Ancestry Health, you can discover how your DNA might influence certain health conditions and the steps that you take with a healthcare provider to chart a healthier path forward. What I'm saying is this. Some health conditions can be influenced by genetics. Ancestry Health looks at a carefully selected set and gives you insights about how they could impact you and your family. Ancestry Health gives you personalized health reports that are easy to understand with actionable insights and access to genetic counseling resources, plus a family health history tool to track generations of health. And of course, you'll receive Ancestry DNA ethnicity results that reveal your origins as well. So learn from your genes and take action for your family. Go to Ancestry.com slash Rome and learn more and get your Ancestry Health Kit today. That's Ancestry.com slash Rome. Ancestry Health includes laboratory tests developed and performed by an independent CLIA certified lab partner and with oversight from an independent clinician network of board certified physicians and genetic counselors. Ancestry Health is not currently available in New York, New Jersey, or Rhode Island. When Odell Beckham wears a watch on the field, or Odell Beckham wears the wrong shoes on the field, that's no different than what Miles Garrett did. It's not compliant to what we want to be as a team. It's not compliant to our culture. So if you tolerate A and B, why are you surprised you got C? Yo, what's cracking? Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast, our original weekly side hustle. And this week, episode 107, we are going hardcore NFL. That's because we've got somebody who has seen pretty much everything there is to see in that game. He scored his first ever NFL gig as a scout to Bill Walsh back in the day. He worked nearly 10 years under Al Davis with the Raiders. He was the GM of the Browns. He was a special assistant to Bill Belichick in New England. He has got a fistful of jewelry. You can also hear him currently on the GM Shuffle podcast. He hosts his own radio program on VSIN. He contributes to The Athletic. And we'll even find time to mix in time for this podcast as well. You can also listen to him as he hosts the GM Shuffle podcast, and he's got his own radio program on VSIN, and he contributes to The Athletic as well. My guest is Michael Lombardi, and if anybody can help us make some sense of a wild NFL season, it's this guy. With four weeks left in the regular season, we are getting ready to do a deep dive this week. So, lock it in. Episode 107 of the Jim Rome podcast with Michael Lombardi starts right now. Michael, it is so good to spend some time with you, especially in the long form. Let me start you off with this. The coaching carousel is spinning already. Carolina fired Ron Rivera on Tuesday. Not a huge surprise, Michael. What is your reaction to that decision, and do you think they can do better than Rivera? You know, I think this. You know, David Tepper, if you just talk to people on Wall Street and mention David Tepper's name, he's held in awe. He's in, I mean, he's the king of Wall Street, truly. Hedge fund, billionaire. Everybody knows him to be a very smart, analytical person. And everyone told me the day he bought the Panthers, he would take time 
to investigate, to understand before he reacted. And I think he did that. And I, what's surprising was he's changing his front office where he said he wants to keep Marty Herney as the general manager, but he wants to bring in a football a director of football operations and an executive vice president of football. So that leads me to believe he wants to change his entire organization. And when he steps into the search for an offensive coach, which is what he indicated he'd like to do, he's going to find to get the best coach, the best coach is going to want to pick his own GM or own personnel guy. So, Michael, when you look at it right now, it's like, what would that leave them? If you were advising them or you were working within that structure, what kind of a head coach are you looking for? Are you looking for somebody who's got experience, or are you looking for that bright young mind who's on the way up? Knowing Tepper, and I don't know Tepper, but just reading about Tepper and understanding how he built his company and understanding how his mind works analytically in the hedge fund world, I would think he wants somebody really, really smart, somebody who could challenge him and would take his curiosity as an idea, not as a threat. And I think that, to me, would be somebody like in the Belichickian tree. To me, the name that comes right to mind is Josh McDaniels, because I think Tepper and McDaniels intellectually will get along. And because of that, Tepper also understands the need for culture, the need for being able to adapt an organization. Look, we can talk about the Cowboys and Jason Garrett and why does he not succeed. The reality of it is, is, is the culture within Dallas predicated by the owner of the team is challenging to succeed. I think Tepper understands culture first with the coach. That's what helps you win. All right, so Michael, I know how strongly you feel about culture. And since you mentioned culture with the Dallas Cowboys, like I'm on the outside and looking in, but I'm trying to figure out exactly what the Cowboys culture is. I mean, does Jerry Jones even care about culture? No, you know, look, I worked for Al Davis for 10 years and Jerry learned a lot of the game from Al and Al Al didn't care about culture because when Al was successful, it, that we were a sport that was really playing checkers. You know, the, 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 the quarterback called plays, the, the Mike linebacker called the defenses. Now that we've entered into this arena of chess, it's more challenging for the coach to, to operate without a great culture. And I think Al never really understood that. The 10 years I worked for him, he, he really minimized the head coaching role. And I think Jerry does the same. I mean, I, I kid about – I call Jason Garrett the clapper, and I kid about it, but I really like to know what he does on Sundays. Like, he just stands there and claps. Like, I never see him instruct a player. I never see him look at Polaroids or the game tracks. I never see him look at the video. All I see him do is yell, smile, and spit. <laughs> All right, so if the guy literally is not, not doing anything other than clapping and yelling and spitting – Exactly what does Jerry Jones see in him? Why has he kept him there as long as he has? Because he does what Jerry wants him to do, because he doesn't steal the thunder from Jerry. The Jerry has a radio show. He has a TV show. It's For Jerry, it's bigger than just who's, if the head coach is stealing his thunder, it's not that Jerry Jones, he's just not happy being the owner. He wants to be all of everything. And that becomes a problem. When we determine how we win is more important than just winning, it really is hard to win in the NFL. I was going to say, I wonder, what are, where is winning in his priority, list of priorities, Michael, Jerry? Yeah, I, I don't know where it is. I don't know where. I mean, I know he wants to win. He spends money. But it's winning my way. It's not winning anyway. It's winning my way. It's like, you know, people get in these boardrooms, and, you know, unless it's my idea, it's not a good idea. And there's some companies that have this rule that says the best idea wins. I think those are the teams that are the best teams. And so what about Garrett then? I mean, if you had to guess, what does he need to do to keep his job going forward? 
he's got to win the Super Bowl. I mean, anything less than a Super Bowl win, maybe maybe going to the Super Bowl. But other than that, Jerry's out propagandizing him now, saying he's going to coach in the NFL. And of course, the media is just taking this hook, line, and sinker. When in reality, all Jerry's trying to do is get him another job so he offsets the money he owes Jason Garrett. <laughs> Because Garrett's got another contract. I think he has another year on a deal, one more year, because Jerry didn't extend him. And there's always offset language within contracts. So, look, I mean, he's already gone out and said he's probably going to coach somewhere else in the NFL next year. Where? I don't know. Like, my question to most people is simply this. Where, when you hire Jason Garrett, what do you get? You don't get an offensive guru. You don't get a defensive specialist. You don't get a special teams. Their special teams in Dallas rank in the bottom 25th of all categories. What do you get? Do you get a motivational guy? Do you get Ant- do you get Tony Robbins? No. Do you get Mike Tomlin a great you know great press conference? No. What do you get? No one can answer that question. But everybody says he'll get a job next year. But no one answers the question of what do you get when you hire him. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he'll get a job. Michael, I, I don't see him getting another head coaching job. The way you lay that out, I'm not even sure he sounds like a coordinator at this point. So if he goes, who do you bring in? I mean, theoretically, it sounds like a great job, but is it a great job? And who could they best hope to hire? I think he's going to want to hire an I think he's on this offensive train, too. I think he's going to want to hire a bright offensive mind. Could it be, you know, somebody who's, you know, having a great season this year, Greg Roman? you know, to come in and coach. I don't know if Greg Roman can coach that style, but I think it's going to be some of, one of the, a young off, a young Sean Payton is who I think he'll want to hire because remember, he's always loved Sean Payton and Sean signed that extension this year and everybody thought he was going to head back to Dallas, but he signed a, a big extension in New Orleans. But I think the model of who Sean Payton is, is who I think Jerry will want to hire. What about Lincoln Riley? Would he have any shot at him and would Riley have an interest in that? You know, Jim, I tell you, when you really watch Oklahoma, they're really a college offense, a lot of option, a lot of hash mark passing game, very, very, very little drop back pass, 99.9% all play action. I, I, I think Lincoln Riley's a wonderful coach, and he looks great, and he's got that Cliff Kingsbury good looks, but I'm not sure that if he comes in the NFL, can he handle the challenges that are going to come with a different style of offense that's really not a pro style. It's been quarterback friendly because it's been play action pass because it's been a lot of trick plays ingrained into what he does into an offensive system. I think he's a really good coach at Oklahoma. I'm not sure he's the right guy for a pro job yet. You know, Michael, it's really interesting what you said about how he's kind of got this look and he kind of has that Cliff Kingsbury look and he's kind of a good-looking guy. Does stuff like that matter to owners? Yeah, it does. I, I've said this now, Jim, for a while. We are now entered. You and I are older, so we, we there was a time where merit, got you your job but today in this world you have to be elected not selected you are elected who's electable right who is electable you know mike mccarthy became the head coach of the packers when they were 30th in the league in offense because ted thompson hired him mike got selected now we can argue whether mike was a great head coach or not or not but how do you hire a guy from the 30th offense i mean zach taylor came in from one of the worst offenses of all time but he was electable only because only because he had a cup of coffee with Sean McVay. Electability is the key word in the NFL today. Like they're candidates, right? More than coaches. Exactly. Everybody loves the feeling of winning. We all do. I say it myself all the time. Scoreboard. Look up at it. Everybody wants to win, and everybody wants to win the holidays. Follow me on this. If you're giving everybody 
Bombas socks this holiday, you deserve a spot in the Holiday Gifting Hall of Fame. Yeah, I said it. What I'm getting at is this. I love these socks, and I love the company behind these socks. And did you know that socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters? Bombas socks were created to change that. For every pair you buy, Bombas donates a pair to somebody in need. And Bombas socks are soft. And I don't mean like pretty soft. I mean like made with the softest cotton in the world. Soft. And they're built with extra cushioning. So no matter what you're doing, you're walking the dog, you're chilling at home, you're playing drums, you're saving the freaking world. Whatever it is, you will be comfortable. If you want to give somebody a perfectly nice gift this holiday season, give them a candle. But if you want to be a holiday gifting ninja, give them Bombas. Go to bombas.com slash Rome and get 20% off any purchase during their big holiday sale, November 18th through December 5th. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash Rome and get 20% off. Bombas.com slash Rome. All right, so you mentioned the Patriots, Michael. The Texans just beat the Patriots. Tom Brady made a point of saying, look, look, we're 10-2. and We're not 2-10. and Fair enough. How do they look to you? For instance, if the offense does not improve dramatically, in your mind, are they still legitimate Super Bowl contenders? Well, I think, look, I, I think this we, This is what I've said now for three years. The defense, because of the rules, can't carry you. You have to be good offensively. And I think the issue offensively is they're going to have to improve at receiver. They must make dramatic improvement at receiver. And it's not about finding new players on the street. It's about getting the players that they have, the Keneal Harry, Philip Dorsett, the, uh, uh, Myers, Jacoby Myers. They have to get them to play at a higher level. And this is one of Belichick's strengths. He's always able to do that. He can get players to play at a higher level. I think they have to get back to the details. Look, they have not played well at the receiving core. It's made Brady very frustrated. It's affected their offense. The last two weeks having Isaiah win back has helped their offensive line. But the reality here is if they can't throw the ball effectively come playoff time, it's hard to win. Michael, what about Brady? Do you see any slippage in Tom Brady, or is it only in the talent around him? I think it's really, you know, when I watch it, and, and, and I'll say this, and I'll confess, and when I went there in 14, I was worried about Tom. I was worried about him because if you remember the 13 season, he did not have a great 13 season. He struggled. And, you know, out in Denver, he misses Julian Edelman on over route when, when Peyton Manning went to the Super Bowl that year. You know, and it was one of those years where, oh, my gosh, it just doesn't look right. I don't see it here. I see a lack of confidence. In the players around them, I see him missing a security blanket in Gronk. I've said this, when they signed Antonio Brown, that was not a luxury. That was a necessity. And I think he misses that one extra inside receiver that he hasn't had on the football team this year. Maybe it'll be Mohamed Sanu as he learns what to do. Right now, he doesn't know what to do. they got to get him up to speed. But I think that's really been the biggest thing. I've been remarked at, at how well he's looked throwing the football. There's no decline in his arm. It doesn't look Philip Rivers-ish where you're saying, wow. Even Drew Brees, when he played outside in Tampa, his arm didn't look good. But the last two weeks in the Dome, it's looked great. All right, so given that, that Tom Brady is still playing pretty well and still throwing a good ball, and you know he's going to get you in and out of the right place. I mean, he's still Tom Brady. If you were a betting man, Michael, would you say that Tom Brady ends his career with the Patriots or no? I, I can't, Jim, I, can't, I remember Joe Namath in a Ram uniform. Right. I'm that old, right? I remember I remember uh, uh, Johnny Unitas in a Charger uniform. I remember Brett Favre in a Jet uniform. It just doesn't look right, does it? 
It doesn't look right. Look, I think this. Tom's been in one system his whole life, and he's really – and the system has evolved around who Tom is. I can't imagine him going somewhere, unless it were the Miami Dolphins, which is running the Patriots system, that could actually utilize what Tom's playbook is. That could be the only team. There's really, he's not going to sign in Chicago and then run that offense with Matt Nagy, who's never coached him. I'm using that as an example. I just don't see it. So in my mind, my answer is I think he plays at the Patriots. You know, it seems kind of weird, right? Like, I, I, I agree with you. I don't see him in another uniform. But the guys you mentioned, I mean, like Joe Namath, it was unfortunate not only to see him in a different uniform, but to see him struggle the way he did in a different uniform. Like Joe Montana, right? You never thought you'd see him in another uniform. But at least there were a couple of moments, right, Michael, where he played at a pretty high level. Maybe not what yep. he was, but a pretty high level where he didn't embarrass himself with the Chiefs. It just looked weird in a different uniform. Yeah, I agree that. I would agree with that. And then Joe couldn't hold on. And then I think, you know, Tom, you know, Tom in one breath talks about comfortability, confidence, and trust. And it's hard to do that when you go to another organization. You know, what about the Cleveland Browns? Obviously, an uh, uh, organization that you're very familiar with, Michael. They've been one of the bigger disappointments this year. i got to admit, I hit that bandwagon hard. I love them. I love what they did in the offseason. I understood the questions, but things have not gone well. Is there any chance that Freddie Kitchens is one and done there? You know, it's interesting. Jimmy Haslam refuses. He used to ask me, Jim, all the time, what makes a good owner? And I would tell him, and he'd write it down. And then, of course, he never listened to one thing I'd say. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I think he doesn't want to make a change. I don't think he likes this reputation that he's um, that he is qu- quick to react. But my sense of it is is my sense is is they're structurally all wrong. I mean, you, you know, they're, they're not. It's John Dorsey's bringing in so many guys that really are not what I would say high-character people, and they're a team of characters, not a team of character. And I think that affects them. And I think, that had, and I think they have deeper concerns through all this, is their quarterback doesn't throw the ball down the field very well. I mean, look, two weeks ago he did, against, uh, you know, he did against the win in Buffalo, but the reality of it is, is he has struggled to make throws down the field. Last week, Odell Beckham averaged under 10 yards a catch. They've had too many games where he's not throwing the ball down the field. He can't see from the pocket. He struggles to make throws down the field. Now, I know he's got 75 commercials, and everybody thinks he's the greatest quarterback in the world, but when you break him down on Sundays and after the game, whether it's the QBR rating or just in general, he's not a top-10 player. Hmm. You mentioned character, Michael. Back when you were evaluating talent and getting ready for the draft, how would you offset character versus talent? How important was character to you when you were selecting players? Well, when you work for the Patriots, character is what it all matters, right? So the character is essential. You, you can't – and character is defined by it really in terms of mental toughness. And think about the Cleveland Browns this year. Mental toughness is about doing what's right for the team when it might not be right for you. Right. And so therefore, you know, you've got to you think Odell Beckham is mentally tough. Well, I don't think he always does what's right for the team if it's not right for him. And I think there's a lot of players and Miles Garrett's the perfect example of that. And I think you've got to find players that value the name on the front more than the name on the back. Now, does that mean we're going to just sign choir boys? Not at all. No, it doesn't. We need guys that like football. We need guys that love to compete. We need guys that love the sting of battle. But we also need guys that are going to be compliant and do what's best for the football team. And that's the balance you have to work on. All right, so Michael, you worked for Bill Walsh. You worked for Al Davis. You worked with Bill Belichick. You've spent decades in that league. What was going through your mind when you saw Miles Garrett rip Mason Rudolph's helmet off his head and smash him in the head with it? 
I thought it was a reflection of I, I was happy the league find the Browns and the Steelers because I think it's a reflection of your team. I think it's a reflection of your organization. I think it's a reflection of your culture. I think you really, you know, part of having poise and being able to handle the situation is to be is to be coached through it, right? I promise you, I promise you, New England, they watched the video of what Miles Garrett did, and Belichick went over it because he's going to make sure he coaches his team on what not to do. He's not going to assume they're going to know it. But this Browns team has been behaving this matter. Which, it's not as egregious. But it's exactly the same thing. When Odell Beckham wears a watch on the field or Odell Beckham wears the wrong shoes on the field, that's no different than what Miles Garrett did. It's not compliant to what we want to be as a team. It's not compliant to our culture. So if you tolerate A and B, why are you surprised you got C? Contractors everywhere rely on Ferguson for a wide variety of specialty products, tools, supplies, and services. Access all this and more with the new Ferguson app. It allows you to order on the go, find your nearest location, and quickly scan product barcodes for easy reordering. With tools like this, it is no wonder why ordering with Ferguson is the easiest part of your hard day's work. Download today and get started. You know, when you look back on your career, you began your NFL career in 1984 as an area scout under Bill Walsh. How did you get that gig, and what was he like to work for? So I just got really fortunate. I was working at UNLV, and the, the director of college scouting, Tony Rosano, needed really a gopher. And I think, uh, you know, he took a liking to me. They hired me at $20,000 a year. And I was Bill Walsh's basic gopher. And it was the greatest job of all time, Jim, as I write about in my book, because I was basically, I was doing carpool karaoke back when, before James Corden did carpool karaoke. I was in the car driving him around, no cell phones, no ways, no, uh, you know, I could pull him up to the airport and drop him off right at the gate, you know, and I took him home and I, you know, I, I took care of it. And I got his car cleaned and there was no satellite radio, so I had to make sure I could go back from KFOG because I wanted to hear Springsteen and put on classical because that's what Bill wanted and not get in trouble for changing the channel. So it was my football education. And in that car, I learned about culture. In that car, I learned about Tom Peters, about what, what he believed was, uh, you know, uh, uh, the leadership battles that, that, ha- that you had to be. And he often told me many times, you know, you can't be like scouts. All scouts are are bad coaches now telling good coaches what to do. <laughs> and he was right. And so, you know, and then read Search of Excellence by Tom Peters and Bob Waterman and read about leadership and how what we do is about leading people. It isn't about just telling them what to do. And I think that's really been impactful on my life. I'm, I'm going to talk to you about Springsteen in a moment because I'm a big Springsteen guy myself. But when you talk about Bill Walsh, I know that one of your assignments, Michael, for the 86 draft was to find a pass rusher for Bill Walsh. And reportedly you would narrow the list to a couple of guys, Romeo Andrews and some dude named Charles Haley. What did you like about Haley at that time? And was that a tough sell to Bill Walsh? You know, Jim, we, we, we got to, we're now on 16-millimeter tape. And... So I had three cans of tape on Romel Andrews from University of Tennessee, uh, Martin, okay, which is north of Memphis. And then we had tape on this kid named Charles Haley from James Madison. And, and we went up into the room, and the first tape we put on, we watched Andrews, and we watched maybe two games of them and got bored. And then we put on Haley. And Haley, I can still see it as I can see my grandsons. It, Bill was sitting at this small office at 711 Nevada Street, 
and he's running the projector, and on the second play, Tracy Ham from Georgia Southern runs the option away from Haley, who's playing outside linebacker. Haley comes down the line screaming as fast as he can. He starts to tackle Tracy Ham. Ham pitches the ball to the tailback on the triple option. Haley leaves Ham, tackles the back from the triple option for a four-yard loss. Walsh literally, Jim, shuts off the projector and says, man, do we need to see anything else? Wow. And that was it. Wow. I, I love Charles Haley. I used to love Michael talking to him. That's a bit of a different cat now. Like, what's your yeah. favorite story from your time with Haley that you can tell besides that one? You know, I mean, I was so young and he was so young when I was there. I left in 87 before he became the man. But, I mean, what he, what he was able to do, what Bill was so good at was we first when he first came to training camp that summer, Bill made it very clear to Bill McPherson, to George Seifert, to Ray Rose, look, we're not teaching him the playbook, fellas. We're not going to teach him. We're going to teach him how to rush. That's all we care what he can do. I don't care what he does on, on first and ten runs. I want him to impact the game. See, here's – Haley, to me, is symbolic of what the West Coast offense truly is. People think the West Coast offense is smash seven curl or 20 bingo cross. It's not. The West Coast offense is we are going to establish the lead early in the game, and we are going to have pass rushers that can rush the pass or late in the game to create turnovers. And Haley was symbolic of what the West Coast offense represents. All right, now, Michael, you drafted another guy that I loved, Eric Turner, with the second overall pick in the 91 draft when you were with Cleveland, and that was the highest selection ever for a DB in football's modern era. He, he was fierce. I loved him as a player. Yeah. He died tragically at just 31 from stomach cancer. What was he like as a player and a person? He was the biggest guy. I mean, he was physically gifted in terms of size and speed, and his range was remarkable. And he was a tremendous kid with a great smile. And he made our defense. I mean, remember, we've got Belichick coaching defense. We've got Nick Saban on the 94 Cleveland Brown defense. Both Saban was the coordinator, Belichick was the head coach. We gave up 204 yards that 204 points that year in the NFL, 16 games. Beat Dallas when Dallas was in their heyday in Dallas. We just couldn't beat Pittsburgh. And Eric Turner and Stephon Moore, the two safeties of the team, because Belichick believed when he handed me a piece of paper the day he walked into the Browns facility, he wanted to be a big physical football team to control the middle of the field, and that was Eric Turner. He was big physical, and he controlled the middle of the field. The longest run that year against us in 1994 was 24 yards because we had Eric Turner. Hmm. I was talking to Bill Romanowski, Michael, not long ago on this podcast, and we talked about Ronnie Lott. And even as a member of the media, I've had a couple of encounters with Ronnie Lott. I'm fascinated by Ronnie Lott as well. What was he like with the Niners coming up and the kind of impact he had on everybody in the organization? He, he was truly the blood and guts of the, org of the team. I mean, think about this, Jim. When we played the Rams, the, the Los Angeles Rams, with Jim Everett quarterback and with Eric Dickerson at running back, we moved Ronnie Lott from corner to safety in a game in a week because we wanted Ronnie to beat up on the, on Eric, Eric Dickerson when he ran the ball inside. He had such an appeal. We drafted Tim McHire in the third round. Tim McHire wouldn't tackle anyone, me included. And Ray Rhodes says to me, that won't matter. Ronnie will get him to tackle. Ronnie will make him tackle. That's Ronnie. Ronnie was the most competitive. To me, if I'm drafting my all-time team, Ronnie Lott's in my top. Uh, he's the first player I'm taking that's not a quarterback. I can't he's help but laugh. I was going to say, that's, that's incredible praise from you. I'm laughing at Tim McHire, man. What, what a who Tim McHire was. So what did you make of McHire and his act and his skill set? And could he back up some of the things that he used to say back in the day? 
he was really talented, and he could back up some of it, but Ronnie made him a better player because he was scared to death of Ronnie. And he wasn't coming, as Ray Rhodes told me back in 1986, he said, McIrie ain't coming back in the huddle and facing Ronnie if he don't tackle. Ronnie will kill him. That is good stuff. That's what Ronnie was. Ronnie was the most dominant force on and off the field. And give Bill Walsh a ton of credit. The reason Ronnie was so well-prepared and the reason Ronnie was so good at what he did is because we signed Hacksaw Reynolds in 84, who was basically done. But Hacksaw was a a team player. He loved playing football. He cherished the game. He would get dressed at 7 in the morning in full uniform. And he would show up on Mondays through Friday, and he had a box of pencils, and he told all, showed all those young players how to adequately prepare for the game. And Ronnie learned from him. Ronnie understood what it took to play from him. And Ronnie's physical dominance on that field was just truly remarkable. It was remarkable. You could feel him today. I don't know if he could have the same impact because of the rules and how they call the game. Hmm. Michael, did you give Jim Harbaugh his first coaching job in Oakland? How did that go? You know, what happened was we were – I gave John Harbaugh his first coaching job at the Philadelphia Eagles. We were trying to hire two – we were trying to hire a special teams coach in Philadelphia when I was there. And it came down to two names, Rich Bisacci, who was at Clemson, and John Harbaugh was in Indiana. We wanted, we picked Bisacci originally, but he had four kids. He was living in Clemson, and the job wouldn't pay him enough to move. So we went to John Harbaugh. We hired him. John Harbaugh then becomes a coach at Philadelphia, and he calls me on the phone and says, my brother Jim, who I didn't know, is looking for a job. At the same time, Al Davis said, Michael, we need to find an ex-player who we can groom as a quarterback coach. Well, one plus one equals two, and as Springsteen always says, one plus one equals three. We ended up having the best coach, and he came in, and I could tell you stories upon stories, and my favorite one is he's so competitive like Ronnie Lott. He's so dynamic, and he wants to do well, and he's inquisitive about everything that one night he would stay late in the office, and his nose hit the M key on the keyboard, and when he woke up, he had 4,000 pages of M's. Yeah, that is funny. So Michigan's obviously better now than when he arrived, but not necessarily what they should be, right, or could be. What do you make of the job he's done at Michigan? I think, you know, I think Jim has is, is done a good job. I think Jim would be the first to tell you, you know, they got to close the gap on Ohio State. I mean, he knows he's there. He's wearing, the, he's wearing those, those khaki pants to beat Ohio State. He's Bo, and he knows Bo needs to beat Ohio State. I think he just needs to do it. I'm not sure they're as talented as they need to be to beat Ohio State. Because, look, let's face it, if it wasn't for the NC2A transfer portal and allowing Justin Fields to go from one school to the other without sitting out, I mean, we wouldn't be talking about Ohio State to this level that we are. But we are, and they're really good. And I think Jim needs to get someone like a Justin Fields on his team because, as Al Davis used to say, put that young man on my team, my team will be better. So really quickly about Harbaugh, is he a better college coach or a better pro coach? What's a better fit for him? I think the, the college game is better because, look, he wants, to, he wants to be able to – one thing about when you're a college coach, you run everything. You control it all. And in, in pros, we have too many people who don't know anything about football trying to control football. Clones, what do we want when we're craving protein or we need more energy? Let me answer that by telling you what we don't want. We do not want a bar or a sugary snack, or an energy drink. No, we want beef, pure and simple. Where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. So it's tender and it's tasty. It's not tough. 
What makes it so good? The company behind it. Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for its relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef very seriously. You can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein, and it comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest that goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? So, Michael, you're a Jersey guy, obviously. You're a big Bruce Springsteen guy. When did you, when was the first time you saw Bruce live? When and where was that? It was in Philadelphia in 1975 at the, wow. the Tower Theater. And he was still, it was after Born to Run, and he was not quite big enough to get into the spectrum. And, and he was there, and my cousin knew about him. So we went, and I mean, I heard this guy singing about Highway 9, which is right out front of my house and uh, Chase Your Dreams and about the boardwalk town, and that was the first time. And now I've seen them in over 100 times, and I've seen them in Europe, which is my greatest thrill of all, Jim. I actually wanted to see spring. I have two thrills in life I want to do. I want to, I want to be in Vienna and hear Billy Joel play Vienna Waits for me, and I wanted to sing Springsteen songs with other Italians, and I did that in Florence. All right, so Florence. I mean, okay, so Florence or Venice. You know, you're either one or the other. Which one do you like better? I like Florence better. Me too. I do. I love Florence. I love being in Tuscany. I love the whole. I love the whole wine thing, and I love steak Florentine. So I'm going to go. I'm Florence. How about Capri? Well, my it's interesting that the, the town that I live in, called Ocean City, New Jersey, all of the people from Italy that live in this town came from Capri. Hmm. It's an amazing place. One of my favorite places ever. So, Michael, quickly about Springsteen. For those who don't understand, 75 is when Born to Run dropped. And that was the time, if you know anything about Bruce, you know that he made the cover of Newsweek and Time Magazine in the same week. Can you explain, do you remember what it was like in this country when that album dropped and how significant and symbolic that record was? You know, and we had no ability to hear it unless we bought it. And we had no ability to play to hear the songs on the radio because some of them were too darn long. And it just the, the absence of of, inst, of instant gratification made it even more. You wanted more of it. And, it, and it, the impact at his words. I mean, look, music inspires all of us. Today's music inspires a generation. He inspired me. I mean, I thanked him in my book because if it wasn't for his words, I would have never chased my dreams. I would have never crossed Highway 9. I would have never closed the screen door. Is that true? I mean, did, did he have that kind of an impact on your life? There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Because when I saw a kid from the same neighborhood that I grew up in, in a beach town, you know, that was good for three months and wasn't good after that, that he was able to achieve something, I knew there was hope for me outside this world. So is that your favorite album? Or like Darkness, where would you rank that compared to Born to Run? The Darkness is by far my favorite album. Oh, it is? I, I could, yeah, I love Something in the Night, uh, and I love Racing in the Street. And you know the f- fascinating thing about Springsteen songs is they all take on different meaning. You know, we think racing in the streets is a song about, you know, uh, racing your car in the street, and it's really a song about forgiveness. And as you get later in life, that forgiveness becomes more important to you. You know what's fascinating to me, Michael, is you mentioned that album, and you didn't go right to Badlands. You didn't go right to Prove It All Night. You didn't go right to The Promised Land. No, I, I, I like to stay off the beaten track. I, I, think his, I think the appeal, like I think one of his greatest songs is the song he wrote about his mother, you know, and, and, he, did, and he did it in a Broadway play. And he talks about how his, how, his, how his mother didn't allow him to get caught up in his dad's world. I think there's some powerful lyrics. Uh, one of his lyrics I talk about all the time is, is some people can't tell their courage from their desperation. 
And we see that in our industry, Jim, and we see that in sports quite often. So really quickly, when Nebraska dropped and it was so dark and kind of acoustic, what was your reaction to that record? I wasn't in love with it, but then when I heard them play Youngstown Live, I was like, "Why? where was I? Why was I sleeping at the wheel? You know, when I heard him play the Ghost of Tom Joe live, I was like, wow. And then when he plays it with Tom Morello, it's, it's, it's even greater. And, I mean, shoot, Michael, I could do this for hours with you, but The River, I still listen to The River quite a bit. I mean, I, I kind of bounce around depending on what I'm doing. I still think that's an amazing record. Where did you come out on The River? I loved it. I mean, I, first of all, the first song I loved was The River, but then all of a sudden, you know, I started to like Point Blank and all these other songs right. on that, that album, and it was just... And it was an interesting album, too, because I really wasn't sure what he was trying to tell me in that album. You know, out on the street, I wasn't sure what the message was in there. Well, I knew the darkness message as it applied to me in my time in my life. I was 17, 18. You know, I could feel the darkness one. I just didn't know what he was talking about. It was all over the place. And then, But the two albums that I think that I probably listen to more than ever are Lucky Town and Human Touch. Well, that's interesting. Be- so, yeah, Because How come? I think... Him going through the divorce and him struggling and his powerful words in those two albums have led me to and have inspired me and have been an inspiration, whatever struggles you have in your career. All right, so then finally about him, you know, you write and you talk a lot about leadership. You talk about culture. How about the boss? I mean, in a way, Bruce has been running his own team and his own corporation for decades. What kind of marks would you give him as a leader? And what do you think about the culture within that band? Well, I think he made it very clear. Look, he, he tells them all they're the highest paid guys in the band. He pays really well. He has rules and regulations. They're not allowed to drink on the job. They're not allowed to, you know, there's no drugs in the band, right? He, he's very clear about that. He, he makes no bones about what, what he expects. He expects perfection from them. He's demanding on them, but yet he rewards them with that. And, and I think he's done a, a real remarkable job. And then I think here's the key part. And I write about this in the book, and I learned this from Bruce, and I learned it from seeing Bruce's concerts. He plays Born to Run, Jim, as you know, plays it the most, like you've never heard it before, even if it's the hundredth time you've heard it. And Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000-hour rule, which I think is really important. But you must combine the 10,000-hour rule with the Springsteen Born to Run rule because you've got to carry passion with what you're doing. If you don't, you're not going to have the same effect. It's really interesting, isn't it? Like, he plays that song over and over and over again, but it's like, it's the first time you've ever heard it. So, Michael, you're a big Ryan Holiday guy, aren't you? You're a big stoic. Love, yeah. You know, I got to meet Ryan because I, I love how the world's flat. So I'm reading The Obstacle is the Way, and I just decide, you know what, I'm going to email this guy because this is the first book that I've read that truly explains who Belichick is. And I, and I, I emailed Ryan, and I said, this book, is the, is, the, is the number one book on who Belichick is. And then that's how we became friends. And it's amazing that the impact, I love that book so much, but it's amazing the impact that book's had on that league. So, Michael, finally, what about, like, your life? You're still, the, the great thing is, you're still deeply steeped in the game, but now you're an author and you're a blogger and you're a podcaster. I mean, you, you do everything now in media. How do you like that side of it? How do you like that life? Jim, I, 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 what I, the best thing is, you know, I talk about this a lot. I write this thing called The Daily Coach, which is an inspirational email every, every coach should get. And, and I found my personal freedom. You know, I think Belichick gains from his six Super Bowls. He gains personal freedom. He doesn't care about what anybody else thinks. He doesn't really he's looking for pats on the back. He, he has his trophies that allows him personal freedom, and he doesn't let the world control him. And I think that writing the book has done that effect for me. I love doing what I'm doing. 
I love helping other coaches. The fascinating thing about the book is I have – the book has been big in hockey. The book has been big in NBA. And I get coaches reach out to me all the time, and giving has made it better than what I was doing in the league. And I don't miss the league one bit. I'm enjoying my son. One works in New England. One works in Miami, so I get to root for those teams. But I'm enjoying giving back to coaches – and being able to talk about the game I love and talk about how leadership really matters in the game I love. All right, so really quickly about the book. If people are listening right now and they want the book, how do they get it? And then secondarily, Ryan Holiday speaks about this. There is a discipline to being an author, a discipline to writing. How do you approach that? Do you get up every morning and write one page, or what do you do? Every morning I get up, I write write a blog called The Daily Coach. It's 500 words. I write that, and I write every day. So if you don't, you can only become a good writer by reading and writing. And Springsteen became a good lyricist by reading every day. It's really John Hammond's gift to us is by convincing him to read more books. And that's why he became such a prolific writer. That's what happens to most musical artists. They stop reading, they stop living, and they don't write as well. And so that's why bands fade. That's why Springsteen's risen. So I do that every single day. My book's available on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, anywhere you get. We change the cover to make it look more for a leadership book, Jim, which is what I think it is. It's a book about... It's really a book about it's a book about how people want to set up their organization and culture, and it has nothing to do with football. Michael, how do people get the Daily Coach? Just go on the Daily Coach, Google the Daily Coach, and sign up for the daily email. Love it. Michael Lombardi. Michael, there is so much good stuff in there. I don't want to take more of your time, but believe me, I could if we needed to. But it's great to have you on this podcast. I'm glad for the long-form conversation, and I appreciate it so much, Michael. Thank you, Jim. Today's episode of the Jim Rome Podcast is brought to you by CBS Sports HQ, the brand new streaming sports news network. It is live 24-7, and you know what? It costs you nothing. That's right. Sports coverage that's always on and always free. Always. CBS Sports HQ has coverage which is always focused on the game. Tons of highlights, breaking news as it happens, fantasy advice, and something we all care deeply about, gambling picks, analysis, information to get us the extra edge. I know, for instance, when I turn on CBS Sports HQ, I'll see the tips and the trends that I need to win those bets. And don't forget, you can get access to all this great coverage for free. I don't mean free for a week or a month or if you have some special cable package. I mean totally and completely free for everybody. You don't even need a login. Simply download the CBS Sports app on your phone, Apple TV, Roku, Fire TV, or any other connected device at any time and watch CBS Sports HQ. No fake debates. Just sports for real sports fans at the great price of nothing. Completely free. You don't even have to log in or sign up for anything at all. Just download the CBS Sports app and watch CBS Sports HQ today. What a great conversation with Michael Lombardi and especially right in the middle of the very best part of the NFL season. So thanks to him for coming on the pod and dishing out that insight. And how good was he on the boss? If you want more Michael Lombardi, check him out on The Athletic, the GM Shuffle podcast, and sign up for his daily newsletter email, The Daily Coach. Great stuff. And I have 106 more episodes just like that one. Make sure you get subscribed right now so you never miss another one. If you're already subscribed, do me a solid. Leave me a review. That is huge in moving the podcast up the iTunes charts and exposing it to new listeners. So thank you very much in advance. 
pumped to get back next week with EP108. But until then, here are your voicemails. First new message. Romy, boom here in the D. You know, if I don't have to listen to Joe Buck for four hours, now I got to listen to Tony fucking Romo. War John Madden's fat ass eating a six-legged turkey or a turducken and watching Barry Sanders tear it up. Happy Thanksgiving. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. Just finished listening to the Holly Robinson Pete podcast. It was my favorite podcast since the beginning. She's awesome. Out. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Rome, what's up? This is David from Buffalo. I got a quick message for Philly fan. Guys, it might be time to start talking Flyers and Sixers and maybe even Phillies because you know what? If the Eagles can't go to Miami and win a game, they don't belong in the playoffs. It's that simple. I can just picture it. First week of January, Carson Wentz has got his golf clubs out with Doug Peterson and other members of the Eagles because you know what? Your Eagles are booking tee times. I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Happy holidays, Jim. What's up? It's Dr. Dave. I know I send you guys a bunch of shitty voicemails here, but just wanted to let you know a good thing. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. It's Duck from Pittsburgh. Now, did Cleveland really think we were going to be their bitches twice in a season? Hey, Browns fans, tell me how my... Message deleted. You have no more messages.